the Central Stanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Stanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralstanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. We're starting a new series called Unseen, and I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Esther, the book of Esther. Esther chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. Esther chapter 1, and we're going to read the first nine verses, and then we're going to be walking through the entire chapter this morning. And my hope is, is to kind of set the stage for where this series is going to take us over these next few weeks. So let's read God's Word together. The Bible says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. When he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. You know, in the past few weeks, many pastors, especially myself, have learned the magic of video production. You know, I kind of joked with a few of my friends that we're all now televangelists, and it's, it's kind of the new normal for us. You know, when it comes to video production, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. M much of what's going on, uh, you'll never see, and, and hopefully you'll never know, but it amazes me how I can goof up or say something weird or have some kind of weird facial expression and they can edit it out seamlessly. You know, there is both illusion and artistry in video production. And I'll, I want you to understand, I am grateful for the team that we have here at Central. They are awesome brothers and sisters in Christ who do everything they can to make me look as good as possible. And I know that's almost an impossible feat. But you know, when you think about television and film, I have a friend who, who works with uh, different television shows, and he says that, that just in some places, it takes like 15 takes, almost three hours to get about 10 seconds of footage just for one little scene. And you know what we understand about television production and movies and film is that not everything that you see is everything that can be seen. There's a whole lot of things going on behind the scenes that will never be shown in the scene. Same is true in life. You know, there are many things that we see, but not everything that we see is actually everything that's going on. There's more things that meet the eye. And you know, I know many of us struggle with allowing what we see to dictate what we believe and define as our reality. But as believers, there is more to reality based on what, than what we just see now. 
We base our reality on the God who is working all things according to the counsel of His will for His glory and for our good. That's why the Apostle Paul says that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's 2 Corinthians 4.18. So the book of Esther, as we began this morning, is a beautiful story of courage. It's a story of grace. It's a story of rescue. Maybe you've seen the movies that have been out there or the television shows on it. As you read the book, you're going to find that it's a very unique book in all of Scripture. And one of the reasons that a lot of people maybe have struggled with the book and what makes it probably the most unique is that the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in any of the pages. And so as we read this book and as we go through this together, here's what I want us to learn. I want us to learn that the story of Esther is not about Esther. It's not about Haman. It's not about Mordecai. It's not even about King Ahasuerus. The story of Esther, this book, is about the king, the true king, who is behind the scenes working on the scene. So in chapter 1, and this is going to hopefully set the stage for the rest of this series, I want us to learn not to be dazzled by the things that we see, nor to be discouraged by what we don't see, but to look to Jesus, who is a better king and has a better kingdom. And so let's begin with that. Don't be dazzled by the things you can see. In verses 1 and 2, the Bible kind of sets the stage here. This book sets the stage and tells us that it was in the days of Ahasuerus. Now, that's a title for the king of Persia. We know, historically, that this is Xerxes I. It was around 480 B.C., and this was the time period in which maybe you've seen the movie, and I'm not recommending this movie by any stretch of the imagination, the movie called The 300. Well, this was the king who led the great wars with the Greeks, and he had a reign here, the Bible says, from India to Ethiopia. Now, why it says those two, two places is because that was pretty much the limits of the known world in that time. It's about three million square miles, about bigger, about the same size as the United States. And then the Bible says here that he was in the, on his royal throne in Susa. Now, what we know about the Persians, especially this empire, that they had actually four capitals, and this was the summer capital. So Susa was, so Susa was the place that the king went in the summer, and so we're kind of seeing that when this all takes place, it's during the summer. And the king here is a big deal. The book kind of goes to extremes, showing how big of a deal King Xerxes was. As a matter of fact, his name or his title are mentioned 190 times and 167 verses in the book. His name alone is mentioned 29 times. Now, that'll be important in a moment. So the Bible says that it was in his third year uh, of his reign that he, he's going to do something. He's going to throw a party. And, and what we know about that is that it took him a, a couple of years to consolidate his empire after his father, King Darius, who was, if you remember, Daniel in the lion's den, was that king during, during that time. Uh, when, when he had died, Xerxes followed him. And so the Bible says that he gave a feast. Now, this feast was kind of like where he had arrived. He, he wants to throw the party of all parties. Historically, we know that he's in his mid-30s. He's the most powerful planet, person on the planet, and he just wants to have fun. As a matter of fact, in the palace there in Susa, as they've done some archaeology, here was one of the placards that they found that dates back to King Xerxes. Here's what it says. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big 
and far-reaching earth. This guy thought he was a big deal, and so he wanted to have a party. And this party was going to be a party of parties. If you read the Bible, he's going to throw a party in which he invites his army, all the rich and famous people of his 127 provinces, some scholars say that he's going to have between fifteen to 20,000 people there, and he's going to give free food, free drinks, a lot of fun. Charlie Sheen has nothing on Xerxes. And this is, I mean, you think about it, this is tax dollars at work. And this party is going to last 180 days, six months of partying. And, and you may be thinking, how in the world could a king and a kingdom and a city have six months of party. Who's going to run the country? You have the army there, the leaders there. Who's going to run the country? Well, I don't know. I guess somebody did. But in those days, they came in there, and they would come before the king, these leaders, these important people, and they would stand in the court, and, and they would just be impressed by all that they saw. So then in verse number 5, the Bible says that when those days were completed, so after the 180 days, after the six months of feasting and, and partying, the king said, you know what? That was for the rich people. That was for the important people. I'm going to give seven days of partying to the common people. Anybody can come to my house. He was going to have just an episode of Cribs that lasted for seven days in his house. And he wants to show how generous he is. So he invites the entire city for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's like coming into Willy Wonka's factory so that everyone could get a sneak peek of what was going on. And you think about this. Everybody got a seven-day vacation. So in verse number six, the author goes into detail to kind of explain what they saw in the house. I don't know if you've ever been to the Biltmore House in North Carolina, but you see the elaborate uh, just display and you try to describe it. Well, that's kind of what the, the writer here is going into. He's talking about white curtains and violet hangings and purple rods. And purple was the most expensive and rare color of that day. You have couches made of silver and gold. The, the floor had mother of pearl and precious stones. The only other place in the Bible that, that describes this kind of extravagant uh, treasures and, and, and just great detail is the temple in Jerusalem. And it's, it's almost as if there's this little shadow that's saying that Xerxes has built his own temple to himself, that, that he sees himself as being God. And so as he invites these commoners in, in verses 7 and 8, he, he creates an edict. This guy is such a micromanager that he creates laws about his party. And this party law was this, there is no compulsion. So Xerxes spared no, exen, uh, no expense, and he said, you can drink as much as you want. No one's going to stop you. So you think about this. You're a commoner. You get to go into the house, and it is an open bar and a golden corral. No limitations, no restrictions, uh, just like the Outback, no rules, just right. Do whatever you want. Seven days of overindulgence, seven days of gluttony, seven days of drunkenness, and seven days of sin. Ain't no party like a Xerxes party because a Xerxes party don't stop. Now, the question is this. Why did he do that? Well, verse number four tells us that he did this to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. Why did he do all this? to show off. He wanted to show off his glory. Glory, that word glory, kabod, is a worship word. It literally means weightiness, heaviness. What, what, what Xerxes wanted to do in showing off all of his stuff for six months is he wanted to matter. He wanted to ultimately matter. He wanted to matter in the minds of 
these important people in this in, in his 127 provinces. He wanted to be weighty in the minds of his army and his generals. And so he took six months to show off his money, his treasures, and his toys. And then he did seven days for the commoners. You know what I found? And I think this is true. Insecure people are always wanting to show off. They just are. They always want to show off because they're trying to overcompensate for where they feel like they're lacking. Tim Kaine, who writes a, a great book on the book of Esther, says this. He says, Xerxes is parading all of his splendor before the people, hoping that they will be impressed and want to become more like him. He is hoping that they will value what he values and will join him in seeking satisfaction in these things. He goes on to say, our culture loves the same things that the Persians love. They love wealth, power, pleasure, comfort, and control. Our culture is constantly calling us to embrace its values, and if we're honest, we have to admit that we often give in. You know, let's be real, okay? This is real time with Pastor Allen. We all struggle with wanting to show off. You know, we think Xerxes is ridiculous, but think about us. Let me ask you these questions. Have you ever exaggerated a story or maybe gossiped about someone else so that you can look better? How many times on social media do you, do you do a post primarily for the motivation to impress other people? Have you ever bought something that you didn't need to impress someone you didn't like so that you can show off? Have you ever done something and, and thought, you know what, I'm doing this so that other people will envy what I'm doing? Have you ever looked at something and thought, you know what, if I only had that, then I would be happy? That's the same kind of mindset. And let's, we, we all struggle wanting to show off and show out. Paul Tripp talks about this when he talks about material things in his book called Awe. He says this. He says, material things capture our awe. And in doing so, they dominate our lives because we mistakenly think that they can give us the one thing that they can never give, life. The physical world around us was never designed to give us life. It can give us temporary fulfillment. It can give us a short-term emotional buzz. It can give us a distraction and a retreat. It can even entertain us, but it can never offer the one thing that every human being desperately craves. That's life. That's what Xerxes wanted. He thought that in all that he had, he could show off and be somebody and matter and have glory and ultimately live large. Well, in verses 9 through 11, we, we kind of see kind of what goes on after the party is about to be over. In verse number 9, we're told that Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women. So the men and the women weren't in the same party room, and that's probably a good thing. If you were a woman, you wouldn't want to be with, uh, with uh, 15,000 drunk men. Do you imagine that? It would be horrible. So the king had his party with his men, and the queen had her party with probably their wives. And the Bible says in verse number 10 that on the seventh day, on the last day of the commoner's feast, when the king was merry with wine, that's, that's a euphemism as he was just plastered. He was drunk. He commanded the queen to be brought, and the Bible says to be brought in her royal crown. According to the Midrash and other Jewish commentators on this passage, the thought was is that the king ordered Vashni to come in only her crown. That is, no clothes. Now, that was scandalous even in that day. But yet, this drunken king wanted to show off what he thought was his crown jewel. So it was show and tell. 
He wanted her to get up on the catwalk and to do her little turn on the catwalk. And what does the Bible say in verse number 12? The Bible says, But Queen Vashni refused to come at the king's command. In other words, she said, No way. Now, I read this and say, You go, girl. <laughs> See, for 187 days, the king has tried everything he can to impress people by showing off how rich, how powerful, how awesome, how generous of a person that he is. But at the end of his feast, all anyone is going to be remembering about this party is how his wife refused his command. You know why? She wasn't impressed. She saw beneath the surface. She wasn't fooled. She saw who the true Xerxes was. And suddenly, in this one moment, the king doesn't look nearly as powerful as he once did. The king who ruled 127 provinces could not get respect from his own wife. So as we read in verses 13 through 22, and we don't have time, and there are tons of hard names there, and, and, and it kind of reads like a, like a really bad uh, he, Hebrew directory in which you just can't figure out the names. But as you read through there, you're going to see that the king is going to get enraged. He's going to get ticked off. He's drunk and he's angry. And so what follows in verses 13 through, uh, through 22 is, is a comedy of errors. He asked his wise men, well, what am I supposed to do? Vashni has disrespected me publicly. What can we do? What's in the law for me to deal with Vashni? And so his wise men, who were probably drunk at the time as well, said, oh, Xerxes, this is going to be an international crisis. People are going to hear about this. Women all around the empire are going to now start disrespecting their husbands. We've got to get word out that you've dealt with Vashni. So the king is going to say, yes, we're going to banish Vashni. She's never going to come in my presence again. In other words, she's going to, there's going to be a divorce and she's not going to be queen anymore. And we need to get this out on the wires. Everybody's got to hear. We got to get it on Facebook, on Twitter. We may have to do an Instagram live. We've got to get it on TV, CNN, Fox, Fox News, MSNBC. Get it all on every outlet we can telling everyone in the region that Vashni is no longer queen. And then guess what? He's going to create a law saying that the women have to respect their husbands. How crazy is that? These laws written by drunk ogres trying to make their wives respect them, this is just crazy, but this is where this man was. And as you read this, you kind of see something, that the greatness of this king was a mirage. He's a king, but his own wife doesn't listen to him. He throws lavish parties, but it doesn't make him happy. He writes ridiculous laws, but he can't make anyone respect him. And here's something I want you to hear, man. If your wife doesn't respect you, it could be because you're not very respectable. Now, the reason I'm sharing all this with you is this, and this is what we're going to see in this book, is that this episode should show us that we should not be dazzled by the things that we see because there's always more than your eyes can see. You know, we look at people on social media and we think, oh, wow, they have a perfect life. But you have no idea. You have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. And you think about this with Xerxes. If a 187-day party that parades all of his extravagant and expensive possessions in front of the people that are the most important cannot satisfy you, then what do you think in your life can satisfy you? You know, some of us think, well, if I can just have this certain relationship, I'll be happy. If I can get a different job, then I'll find fulfillment. If I can have kids, then my life will be complete. If I can just own my house, I can feel independent. 
If I can just impress that certain person, then I'll feel special. If I can get the right grades and, and make good grades, then all my problems will go away. But here's what I want you to understand. Even if you get all those things, it won't satisfy your heart because it can't satisfy your heart. Now, history kind of gives us a little insight of why Xerxes was trying so hard to impress people. He was trying to raise up an army to go to, to war against the Greeks, and he wanted to inspire all these people to join him. And if you think about it, everything that he had, all of his power, his party, his beautiful wife, his wealth, all that he had were not enough. And here's what I want you to hear from me. Whatever you are chasing will never be enough. I don't care what it is. Don't be dazzled by the things that you see. See, Xerxes and his kingdom represent the material world. Our culture today does not make you do the things that you hate. What our culture does today is it helps you do the things that you love, the things that are addictive, the things that are enslaving. Listen, Satan will give you whatever you want as long as he gets to be your king and as long as you serve in his kingdom. So don't be dazzled by the things that you see. But secondly, don't be discouraged by the things you can't see. You know, as you read this story and as you read the entire chapter, and as you read the entire book, a question probably may come to your mind. Where's God? His name is not mentioned anywhere in the book. He does not give a direct word through any kind of prophecy. He doesn't perform any miracles. There are no sacrifices. There's no repentance. And there's no one in the book who prays. And if you read it, it seems like maybe this is like the Iliad and the Odyssey. Even those books, however, had people crying out to their God. This book seems to be very agnostic at best. That's why the early reformer Martin Luther early on didn't really give a lot of credence to the book of Esther. Now, later on, he did. But the reason I'm telling you this is this, is that maybe in your life you feel this way. Maybe you say, you know what, I've, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I've never seen a miracle. I've never heard God speak. I've never seen a, a prayer that I prayed get directly answered. And you look around and everyone around you, they're, they're richer, they're healthier, they're happier than you. Here's the question. What do you do when it seems like God is absent in your life? When you feel like He just doesn't care because like, I don't see Him. And maybe you've gone through situations and maybe now through COVID-19 you're saying, God, where are you in this? And wh what's going on? Where, where are you? Well, look, I hope this book, and as we go through it, will help answer some of those questions. You know, maybe you're asking, well, why does God's name, why, why is His name not mentioned? I mean, if Xerxes' name is, is mentioned at least 29 times, why isn't God's name not even mentioned once? You want to know why? Because God didn't want it there. And you say, well, why would He not want it there? Here's why. This is a good truth. It is to teach us that the events of life, and in the events of life, where God seems apparently absent, He's not. In those moments where you think God isn't there and that He doesn't care, that's the, the exact opposite is true. He is there and He does care. You just may not see it. See, we're, we're taught that God is omnipresent. That is, He is everywhere. And the unfolding story of life is that God is in the details. Some say the devil's in the details. No, God's in the details. And you don't have to add God's name to explain His presence. See, God, all throughout this book of Esther, is going to be at work. Even when God appears to be most absent, He is actually most present. See, God is not named in this book, but His fingerprints are everywhere. 
you have to understand that the presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. The Heidelberg Catechism says this about providence. Providence is the almighty, ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, death and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. John Flavel, who is a Puritan of yesteryear, said this about providence. He said, providence is like a Hebrew word. It's best read backwards. You know, we may not always see God's hands in the details, but we can always trust that it's there. See, you don't always see God's will by looking ahead. You see it looking behind. You see it almost in backwards. You know, in this story, think about this. This story, even what I read, it's in an, it's in an, an entirely secular setting with people who are pursuing everything the world has to offer. They're completely oblivious to God, unconcerned about God's kingdom, and they're doing despicable things. But yet, God's working in the midst of that. See, I don't want you to think that just because you don't see God, that He's not involved. Alistair Begg said this. He said, don't interpret the events of your life in terms of their immediate impact and personal relevance. See, God is at work. And, and don't just judge what's going on right now with COVID-19 thinking, well, there has to be some immediate reason for why God is doing this, or it has to be something for me. What God is doing is not just about you. Now, it will be for your good if you're a Christian and if you're a, a Christ follower. But you see, in the Old Testament, when people saw events that happened, they didn't think of it mainly in individual and personal relevance. They, they saw it in terms of community and generations. Many people in the Old Testament ha had events and things that happened that they never saw. They, they never saw the impact of They never knew the impact. We have no idea with what's going on in, through COVID-19, what God is doing. It, it, it can even have a generational impact, how God is moving His purposes ahead how He is moving His kingdom and advancing His kingdom. We have no idea. Now, we hope that we'll get some glimpses of that. But what we can trust is that God is doing all things according to His purposes for His glory and our good. And so we see this in chapter 1. And this is such an important point. So if you need to, don't, don't move around. This is an important point. Because what happens in chapter 1 sets in motion a chain of events that are ulti that's ultimately going to lead to the deliverance of God's people. Think about this. All right, stay with me. If there were no feast, there were no party, there would be no drunk king. If there were no drunk king, then there would be no call to his wife. And if there were no call to his wife Vashni, there would be no refusal. And if there were no refusal, then there would be no angry king. And if there would be no angry drunk king, there would be no foolish counsel. If there was no foolish counsel, then there would be no Vashni disposal. And no Vashni disposal would mean there would be no Esther. And if there were no Esther, there would no, be no Jews. And if there were no more Jews, there would be no Jesus. And if there's no Jesus, there's no hope. 
What I want you to learn is that God is in control. Regardless of whether the world seems out of control, God is fully in control. God is at work and God is going to keep his promises. So no recession, no virus, no political leader, no political pundit, no television station, no natural disaster, no job loss is going to stop God's promises and God's plan for God's people. So whatever is going on in your life and in this world, don't be afraid. There are two types of people in this world. Those that are afraid and those that know their Bible. And if you know your Bible, you don't have to be afraid because the promises of God always come to pass. And that leads me to the last thought. And that is this, is that Jesus is a better king and has a better kingdom. See, the point of this book is to point you and I to a true and better king, King Jesus. See, Xerxes was a, the man who thought he became God. But Jesus is the only God who became man. Xerxes never tasted poverty or humility, but Jesus tasted both for us. Xerxes abused and he used women, but Jesus honored women. Xerxes spent his entire life being served. Jesus spent his entire life on earth serving others. Xerxes killed millions of his enemies with armies of millions. Jesus died for his enemies, saving billions who trust in him. See, think about this. Jesus did not send his servants to call his bride. Instead, he left heaven and took on flesh and came and called his bride himself. As our king, Jesus should have banished us for our disobedience in breaking his law. But instead, King Jesus chose to take the punishment that we deserve upon himself. We deserve to be banished from his presence forever. But instead, he took our banishment. He died our death and he was forsaken by his father so that you and I would never be forsaken. And Jesus, King Jesus, invites us to a better party and a better feast. In Isaiah 25, hear what God's word says. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. He, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God and we have waited for him that he may save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's the feast he's offering. That's why if you think about the Bible, the end of the story is a feast. It's Jesus inviting us to this feast. And here's what I want to say. Don't be dazzled by the things you see in this earth. Don't be discouraged by what you don't see. There's way more that you don't see than you'll ever see. But you can look to Jesus, who is the true and better king, whose kingdom is true and better, and he invites you to come. So, don't be like Vashni. Don't refuse him. See, Jesus is better than Xerxes. He's nothing like Xerxes. 
Jesus is inviting you to come to him and to live, to have your sins forgiven and to experience the life that you've always longed for in his presence. All those things you think will satisfy your life are just a mirage. Only Jesus can satisfy your heart. So if you're here and you're watching and you believe right now that you've been chasing after the things of this world and you are tired of that and you want to come to that place where you surrender, where you give your life to Jesus, you ask Him to forgive you and save you and you come to the feast He's prepared for you, right now you can ask God to save you. You can ask Jesus to save you. I want to pray for us right now. I want to pray for you. And you can pray with me. There's no magic in the prayer. It's just you being honest with God. Let's pray if you feel God's calling you to give your life to Him. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. I thank you, Father, that I don't have to be dazzled or be enamored by the things that I see. And I don't have to be discouraged by the things that I don't see. But I can trust that Jesus is a better king. And his kingdom is a better kingdom. And so, God, I pray for all those who are listening to me, watching, that they have never come to this place where they've given their life to you. That, God, in this moment right now, that they would say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve to be banished for all eternity from your presence. But I come before you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins and that you save me. I believe that you died on the cross and I believe that you rose from the dead. And I want you to be the Lord and King of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you just prayed to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, praise God. I'm excited. I'm so excited about those who have just trusted Him as their Savior. But if you're here and you're struggling with what's going on, you're a believer, but, but yet you're fearful. You're a believer, but yet you're seeing all the different things and they're, they're, they're causing you to, to be envious or they're causing you to feel unsatisfied. Don't look to the things of this world. Look to God. Look to Jesus. Not the things that are temporal, but the things that are eternal. And I want to encourage you to share His love with everyone you know. Now, if you prayed to trust Christ as your Savior, and you, for the first time, you gave your life to Him. I want to encourage you to have some big courage. And I want you to share with us the decision you've made. Right now on the screen, there's going to be a number. It says 407-338-4024. 407-338-4024. And I want you to get your phone out. And I want you to text in there. And text your name. And I want you to say, I've surrendered. I've given my life to Jesus. Pray for me. Or maybe you've said, I've already done that, but I want to be baptized. We've been baptizing people. You've seen it. Take this step and say, I, here's my name, and I want to take that next step of baptism. Or maybe you need someone to pray with you or to talk with you. Maybe you're feeling lonely. Maybe you're feeling discouraged. Text into this number. Put your name and, and someone will get with you immediately. They'll get with you today and they'll pray with you and they'll talk with you. However we can help you, we want to do so. So text in at this time. Thank you for listening to the Central Stanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.